Hello, and welcome back to the Bug in a Rug podcast. As always, my name's Caitlin. As usual, I'm Whitney. And we're getting closer to... Spalloween. Spalloween. <laughs> what? Spooky. I was going to say the spooky day. But then I made a hard lift in Halloween. Where'd the L come from? Spalloween. 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 Wow, we're embarrassed. <laughs> all right, as we get closer to this wonderful day, we hope you all have your costumes ready. If not, you're pushing it. You're pushing it. I usually push it cl- this close to the envelope, but push it. <laughs> push it real good. Is that how you say that? What? I usually push it this close to the envelope. <laughs> What's the... I don't know. Okay, then why are you? Why? <laughs> oh, oh God! Is that how you say that? I was asking. I've never heard it said like that. What do you hear it say? What do you hear? Pushing the envelope, but I don't really know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Just because I'm a little creative. <laughs> no, I liked it. This is a good laugh. Like <laughs> how creative! I love it. <laughs> Not like a. <laughs> How stupid! What are you doing? It's totally different. I don't understand. <laughs> you're like tiptoeing a line there, and I never know which way you're yeah, falling. Yeah, I'm pushing pretty close to the envelope. <laughs> I thought it was pretty good. All right, so for our episode today, since Halloween is only what I guess two weekends away, this one, next one, it's the weekend after. I don't know because I thought it was sooner than it is. Right. Well, it's coming up. So I have decided to dive into the world of trick-or-treating. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, hell yeah. So we all have probably gone trick-or-treating. For those of you who haven't, trick-or-treating is when people dress up in costumes and then they go around on Halloween night asking uh, their neighbors or whatever whatever community they're in they go door to door and ask for candy they go trick-or-treat and the people go oh my god i love your costume here's a babe ruth baby ruth they hand them babe ruth (laughs) give them the babe ruth i don't even know what the candy bar is i don't actually know what's in it i don't either i don't either now trick-or-treating has been a tradition in many countries for over a century uh it's become a fairly standard routine like i just said Normally, communities will pick a night on or near Halloween. I know for a while people were trying to cancel Halloween or make sure that it was on like a Wednesday or whatever. Um, But communities will pick a day and then they'll designate a time for people to um, walk around communities knocking on doors asking for candy. Most of the time, if you have candy, you leave your light on. Um, I'm totally dead. (laughs) Motel 6. And and when you say people, you mean generally children are the ones doing the trick-or-treating. Yeah, most of the time children. Although people, listen, it irks me slightly because I want to go trick-or-treating, right? But I'm, the standard is that I'm too old. Hey. But people who have babies who can't eat candy. What is the difference between me, myself, going trick-or-treating? And And me taking a six-month-old trick-or-treating. And then eating their candy candy anyway. Right. I'm still dressing up. Mm -hmm. I'll carry a baby doll. Is Mm -hmm. that what you want me to do? I'll steal a small child to go trick-or-treating. Whoa. Slow your roll. Slow your roll. JK, JK, JK. (laughs) So, uh, in order to get into more of our story today, we're going to 
go back in time. You know, you know us by now. We love our history. So I have a couple places of where the practice of trick-or-treating that we know now has come from. And it actually has come from a variety of different places, including ancient Celtic festivals, early Roman Catholic holidays, medieval practices, and even British politics. So we talked about Samhain, which is where we believe the majority of our Halloween traditions have come from. It is a pre-Christian Celtic festival that was celebrated on the night of October 31st, almost 2,000 years ago, in the area that is now Ireland, the United Kingdom, and northern France. Now, they believed that the night of October 31st was when your dead ancestors could come back to the physical world. There was also a um, harvest festival type thing that went along with it. This was the time to, something to do with either planting the crops, harvesting the crops, or something in between. Mm-hmm. That goes along with it, but it wasn't as big of the picture. Now, when the dead returned to the earth, the Celts wanted to make sure that they did not offend the returning spirits in any way because obviously they did not want to anger them. So they would take a few precautions. First, they would build giant bonfires that would cast light on all in attendance so nobody would be caught in the dark by these spirits. The second thing they would do is they would then dress in animal skins to confuse any vengeful spirits that might recognize them. Mm Mm-hmm. And then finally, they would hold a feast to try and appease any spooky entity that may still be lurking nearby. Now, we have a whole nother episode that we did last Halloween on this. So if you're super interested in that, it was a fascinating topic. I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. Still one of my favorite episodes that we've done just because, you know, we all are pretty familiar with Halloween Mm -hmm. and to know the origins of it. Uh, in that sense, it, it was really fascinating, and you told us that story, Kate, right. and I thought it was really a really good one. So yeah, listen back if you want more detail on Samhain. Yeah, I just picked out a couple of things that kind of transition more into what we know as trick-or-treating rather than the whole holiday of Halloween. So as Christianity began to spread throughout that area that uh, Samhain was Uh, celebrated the traditions were altered by the new religion clearly that i mean that just happens Mm -hmm. so in 1000 a.d the church designated november 2nd as all souls day this day was now supposed to be the designated time to honor the dead now the tradition of having giant bonfires and masquerades continued so people still held giant festivals with bonfires and they dressed up but there was a new development that arose from the All Souls Day. So the poor began visiting houses of wealthier families asking for pastries called soul cakes. So in return for the pastries, the poor would offer to pray for peace for the homeowner's dead relatives or friends, I guess. That's kind of nice. Right. So this actually became known as souling, the practice of somebody, you know, knocking on someone's door saying they'll pray for their dead relatives in return for soul cakes. Now, it quickly found the attention of children because, like, obviously kids are going to want cake. Mm -hmm. I, I know I would. So they would go and kind of do the same thing, but instead of cake all the time they would get candies or like pennies in return Hmm. now in scotland and ireland children took part in a similar tradition called guising g-u-i-s-i-n-g they would dress up in costume go door-to-door reciting poems telling jokes singing songs or performing tricks 
for treats and they would get like candies or pennies or soul cakes oh. so that's part of where the tricks come from and they had to work for it yeah oh absolutely i ain't giving candy out for nothing man kids today man kids today don't they don't work. even know they don't have to work for <laughs> anything now there is also a celebration called guy fox night that had a hand in the creation of trick-or-treating bear with me a little bit more historical in this one in 1605, there was an assassination attempt against King James I by a group of English Catholics. This plan was named the Gunpowder Plot, and it was fairly simple. They just wanted to blow up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament on November 5th. Well, the one and only Guy Fox was placed in charge of guarding the explosives, but was arrested before the plan could take place. So in order to celebrate the failure of this assassination, many people lit bonfires around London. They called these bonfires bone fires, and many placed effigies and symbolic bones, quote-unquote, of the Catholic Pope in them to burn. Because it was like, Catholics tried to kill King James I, Mm -hmm. so that, you know. So this became a a holiday, Mm -hmm. not, you know, going against the Pope, but... Um, to celebrate that King James I had lived. Um, And by the 19th century, children were bearing effigies of Guy Fawkes and would roam the streets asking for a penny for Guy. So they would basically kind of dress up like him Mm -hmm. and then ask for candy or pennies. So there is a movie based on um, Guy Fawkes. And I tell you all the time we should watch it. I don't know if you have yet. It's called... V for Vendetta. Mm, mm-hmm. So the idea is um, a man dresses up as Guy Fox and says, we've lost sight of, we have forgotten what they were trying to do. They were trying to overthrow the monarchy that right. rules this country. And um, basically the oppression that it brought. And remember, for, remember the 5th of November. Right, okay, so, okay. He tries to stage another coup, basically. Yeah. But uh, I think Keira Knightley's in it, maybe? Maybe. Probably. But it's a really good movie. Yeah. And um, every November 5th, I try and watch it. Uh, but it's very good. And so that's the only reason that I really no, even kind of know who Guy Fox yeah. is. I have not seen it. So I hadn't heard of this before. I guess maybe it sounds vaguely familiar, mm-hmm. but not real. I didn't know much about it. Probably because every November 6th, when I realize I've forgotten to watch it, I get upset. You're like, oh, I gotta watch it. Right. <laughs> so, um, as people began immigrating to the United States, these traditions still held, or most of them still held. So, some colonists continued to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. Um, while those fleeing the Irish potato famine in the 1840s brought the celebrations of Samhain and All Souls Day with them. So by the 20th century, souling and guising were in full swing in Irish and Scottish communities across the United States. So it picked up pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's for kids. So of course kids are going to want to join in with their friends, even if they don't quite know what it's for. Yeah. So I think it was just a fun thing to do. It's a it's a fairly harmless tradition for parents to be like, oh, okay, dress up, it's fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now, there's, there's a period in time where trick-or-treating started to have a lot more trick and a lot less treat. Uh-oh. And unfortunately, that was during the Great Depression. Mm. So mischief often devolving into vandalism, assault, and other acts of violence started popping up on Halloween night. 
Theories suggest that because of this increase in violent acts, communities basically silently agreed to adopt an organized community-based trick-or-treating tradition hmm. that took things from Samhain, All Souls Day, and Guy Fawkes Day. Because if you think about it, these holidays did not fall on the same day. So I think around October 31st, you know, people didn't have a lot to do. They don't have a lot of money. So clearly they're going to play some tricks and people aren't going to like that. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of caused a big rift in the communities. So this is kind of when everybody was like, we're going to have trick-or-treating on this night at this time. This is how we're going to do it. And this way, kids can still have their fun. Right. But hopefully... But nobody gets hurt. Right, right, right. So, the tradition of trick-or-treating obviously continues to this day, but we are far more cautious of what children are given. Yeah. That's weird. Have you ever thought about that? I feel like it's it's a weird thing that when we were little, I, I didn't know if our parents, mom and dad always wanted to check our candy... I didn't know if it was because... They want to eat some of it? They want to eat a lot of it. <laughs> I feel like Dad wanted to pick out his favorite kinds. Yep. Or if there was, like, an actual reason behind it. Right. So, that is what the meat and potatoes of our story is going to be about today. So, all of the history and the traditions that I have talked about, you don't... It's really just kids running amok, like, asking people for candies and pennies, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you don't hear anything crazy that happened. And although I did mention some, like, violence throughout the Great Depression, there's nothing major that happened um, to cause, like, a trick-or-treating scare. Obviously, they wanted to continue the tradition. But nowadays, we're very much like, you get candy, you check it before you eat it. Mm Mm-hmm. Make sure it's not open. Make sure there's no razors or pins, needles, etc. So basically, what I researched was why did that urban legend come to be? Like, why Mm -hmm. do we think that way now? And there is a very interesting past, and that's what we're going to talk about. I'm concerned. You're concerned? (laughs) I just always wanted it to be that Dad was trying to steal your candy. Steal my candy. So, we obviously still want to be cautious because that's just where our mind goes. We want to make sure nothing's tampered with. However, sociologist and criminal justice experts Joel Best and Gerald T. Harucci wrote that, quote, many, if not most, reports of Halloween sadism are of questionable authenticity. So, basically, what they're saying Sadism, which I had to look up, was basically like the intent to harm mm-hmm. on Halloween through trick-or-treating or through candy. Mm-hmm. They are basically saying that all of the reports of this, there's really no evidence to point to one in particular instance where someone wanted to intentionally harm ch- like children at random. It's one of those things where like... It only has to happen one time before people decide that it's a concern. Right. Oh, absolutely. And again, you still want to be cautious because that one time, like, what if that's your child? Now, while I say that most of the reports are hoaxes, there are some that have some authenticity to them. So it all it just takes that one and there's 
A couple. No. So in 1959, Dr. William Shine was a dentist in Fremont, California. He handed out candy with laxatives to unsuspecting trick-or-treaters on Halloween. 30 children reported to have severe symptoms, but no one was actually hospitalized. They got over it pretty quickly. And Dr. Shine was charged with, quote, outrage of public decency and quote unlawful dispensing of drugs why he do this they he didn't have a reason no, nobody really knows and the next story as well there really isn't a reason so a lot of people think that they're just annoyed at trick-or-treaters are they annoyed or are they actual sadists they don't know because because they don't con- they don't confess to anything, so mm-hmm. they don't know what the reasoning behind it is. Hmm. We jump to 1964. Helen Feel P F E I L handed out ant poison and dog <gasps> biscuits to children in New York. She was arrested and stated that she did it as a joke and only gave it to the children she thought were too old to be trick or treating. Now, nobody was harmed. Essentially, she wrapped Aunt Poison up in a napkin, so when the kids dumped their candy out, their parents are like, what is, what is that? She didn't, like, disguise it well. Um, she pled guilty to her charges of endangering children and served a suspended sentence, so she did get arrested and convicted. Now, on October 28th, 1970, so we jump another six years with nothing really happening, the New York Times released an op-ed suggesting the possibility of people using Halloween candy as a way to poison children. Now, I'm going to read to you the op-ed. This is not, they don't have, like, necessarily legit reasoning behind it. It's just a... They could. This could happen, right? Oh, good. Oh, I like, I love that. <laughs> so, you know what? You know what? You know what could happen? <laughs> that's really, you know what? that's what it is. It's possible. All right. So here's the newspaper article. It's it's by Judy Clem Esrud, K-L-E-M-E-S-R-U-D, and it's called Those Treats May Be Tricks. So, quote, those Halloween goodies that children collect this weekend on their rounds of trick-or-treating may bring them more horror than happiness. Take, for example, that plump red apple that Junior gets from a kindly old woman down the block. It may have a razor blade hidden inside. The chocolate candy bar may be a laxative. The bubble gum may be sprinkled with lye. The popcorn balls may be coated with camphor. The candy may turn out to be packets containing sleeping pills. Within the last five years, the number of incidents involving poisonous or otherwise harmful treats given to young hobgoblins on Halloween has been growing at a rapid rate. This rise has been noted by Dr. Hollis S. Ingram, New York State Health Commissioner, who said recently in his annual Halloween safety bulletin, quote, children should not eat any of their collected goodies until they have been carefully examined by an adult. In recent years, pins, razor blades, sil- slivers of glass, and poison have appeared in the treats gathered by children across New York State. Halloween this year falls on Saturday night, and most children, including those who are trick-or-treating for the United Nations Children's Fund collection, will be ringing doorbells then. But others will be out on Friday evening, the traditional mischief night, when trick-or-treat isn't as important as pranks, innocent and otherwise. Not too many years ago, red-hot pennies that had been heated in an oven were handed were often handed out to trick-or-treaters by sadistic householders. Today, the most common mistreat seems to be the apple that has more than just seeds inside. 
Last year in Anita, New York, someone gave three children trick-or-treat apples with sewing needles in them, and in nearby Ilium, the father of a five-year-old boy found a razor blade in an apple when he peeled it for the child. What kind of people would do things like that? Quote, they are probably frustrated and filled with resentment against the world in general, said Dr. Reginald Steen of Hempstead, L.I., a psychiatrist who is chairman of the Committee on Mental Hygiene of the Medical Society of the State of New York. Quote, they have paranoid feelings, he said, and they might think that a neighbor is out to harm them, so they take revenge and injure the neighbor's children. Dr. Steen said that one reason the incidents might have been increasing in the last few years was because of, quote, the permissiveness in today's society, which he said has resulted in people getting away with more and more violence. The people who give harmful treats to children see criminals and students in campus riots getting away with things, he said, so they think they can get away with it, too. People who have this much hostility towards children must have had a really deprived childhood, commented Dr. Edith Jerka, a psychiatrist who practices at 116 East 66th Street. Dr. Jerka recommended that parents allow their children to go trick-or-treating only to the homes of people that the family knows. Oh boy. Now they did mention a lot of things and a lot of instances. However, and I'll talk about this a little later too, I am not saying that there has not been, like, razor blades or needles found in apples. A lot of these stories that people have combed through, researchers have combed through, they could be true, but they were not handed out to children who were trick-or-treating. Some of the stories happened two weeks before Halloween, but somebody found an apple and a needle and... Or a needle and an apple and freaked like, out and said, be careful because they could do this on Halloween night. I see. But it's not necessarily like, I'm sure some of them are true, but a lot of them like did not specifically happen on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. It was like leading up to Halloween and people kind of freaked out. Yeah. If that makes sense. Well, that one lady called children hobgoblins, so I'm not entirely <laughs> sure Just that saying. I trust her opinion. Yeah, right? So, this article came out on October 28th, 1970. On November 2nd, 1970, unfortunately, a five-year-old boy named Kevin Foster passed away after being in a coma for several days. So, during the investigation into what happened to Kevin, police found heroin sprinkled on the Halloween candy that he had received when he went trick-or-treating. So, this story came out and they reported that he died of heroin being sprinkled on his Halloween candy. And this came out, this happened right after that article that I just read came out. Mm -hmm. So, people freaked out. Flipped it. Yeah, I'm now, sure. Now, his mother, Miss Ida Foster, stated that he had gone to his uncle's home shortly after trick-or-treating, so he most likely ate the candy there. Upon further investigation, the police discovered that the boy had actually accidentally found his uncle's heroin stash and ingested some of that. Mm-hmm. And then in order to cover up what had happened, the uncle, Henry Coleman, had sprinkled the heroin on the candy. Mm-hmm. So, so you you kind of see where I'm saying like yeah. things happened around Halloween and with Halloween candy. However, it's kind of things like this. And the New York Times actually reported on this as well. And I have the article for this as well. So this article is called Candy Suspected in Death of Boy Age 5. 
A five-year-old boy who had eaten Halloween candy laced with heroin died today without regaining consciousness. The authorities at the Children's Hospital ordered an autopsy on the victim, Kevin Tostin, who fell into a coma early Tuesday after eating the candy on Monday. He collected the candy last Saturday on his trick-or-treat rounds. Doctors said that the boy had suffered an overdose of narcotics. Analysis of some of the candy he had eaten showed that heroin mixed with quinine in powder form had been sprinkled over it. The boy's mother, Miss Eda Foster, told police that Kevin spent Monday night at the home of her brother, Henry Coleman. While there, he ate some of the candy he had collected. Several hours later, Kevin began sweating and breathing heavily. He had failed to awaken by Tuesday afternoon, and he was taken to a clinic from where he was transported to the children's hospital. Now, the article states nothing about what actually happened. They reported on it very quickly, which is understandable, obviously. But like I said, they the true story is that he had accidentally taken his uncle's heroin, mm-hmm. and then his uncle tried to cover it up. So they didn't go back and publish a follow-up article either? I could not find mm-hmm. one. I could not find one in the New York Times. I told Winnie I got a subscription to the New York <laughs> Times because they have a database where you can search you can search keywords from newspapers from like years and years ago to mm-hmm. 2002 which is what I did and I could not find anything that recounted this statement interesting so I wonder if it happened too quickly or if they're like we're not gonna go back and do it I don't know I don't know so what really got me interested in this topic was this next story that I'm going to tell. And I think this one is probably one of the most famous stories when it comes to Halloween candy being poisoned. I think this is a big part of where the fear came in. Of the, like, make sure you check their candy. Right. Because it could be unsafe. Right. So four years later, on October 31st, 1974... Ronald O'Brien took his two children and his neighbor's two children trick-or-treating that night in Houston, Texas. They were receiving a lot of candy, but they went to one house in particular, and it seemed like no one was home. So the kids kind of got bored and, like, ran to the next house. But the dad was like, oh, like, I'll knock one more time just to make sure. Like, you guys go ahead. Like, I'll catch up with you guys. Mm Mm-hmm. So as they met back up with the dad, O'Brien said that a man had actually come to the door and given him giant pixie sticks, and so he handed one to each of the kids. Now, he had one left, and he actually gave it to a boy that they saw later that night that they knew from church. Because mm-hmm. he was like, oh, I'm not going to give, I have four kids here, I'm not going to give one of them two, because that's yeah, yeah, yeah. rude, That'd be obviously. So after returning home, the children quickly decided to eat a few pieces of candy that they had been presented with. O'Brien's son, Timothy, who was eight years old at the time, decided to first consume a giant pixie stick. Now, that's... I love pixie sticks because I love straight sugar. You down it. So, like, that would be what I would go for, too. Now, after pouring it into his mouth, O'Brien said that Timothy proclaimed that it was not as sweet as what he thought it would be or that it was very bitter. Mm-hmm. So O'Brien gave him some Kool-Aid and then was like, oh, we'll just wash it down with Kool-Aid. I'm sure maybe it's just the flavor mm-hmm. that you don't like or whatever. A short time later, Timothy complained that he did not feel well and promptly vomited. He then fell to the floor convulsing. 
Not even an hour after consuming the candy, Timothy fell unconscious and would be pronounced dead when he arrived at the hospital later oh, that evening. No. So Detective Sergeant for the Pasadena Police Department named Harold Nassif was called to the scene. Now, I actually, one of my uh, resources has an interview with uh, Nassif, but it's like... So many years after. It's like a kind of like a current video of him. Mm -hmm. um, and he's talking about what happened that night. And it was very fascinating. So I highly recommend watching that clip. So O'Brien told Nassif, the officer, what had happened. And they immediately suspected that there was something wrong with the candy. Obviously. Mm -hmm. Like that's the last thing he did. So mm -hmm. it had to have been the candy. Now they did a drug screen of Timothy and it came back stating that the pixie stick had been laced with potassium cyanide. Mm. And according to a pathologist, the amount that Timothy consumed was actually enough to kill two adults. Oh, no. So the investigating officers immediately jumped into action and they retrieved all the other pixie sticks. And they were thankfully unopened and uneaten. One of the children had tried to open it, but the parents were like, um, no, you're going to bed right now. And so they didn't eat it. So all the other kids were fine. So it was determined that the pixie sticks had been opened, mixed with the potassium cyanide, and then stapled shut once again. Or the potassium cyanide was kind of dumped on the top, and then it was mm -hmm. reclosed. Re so in order to find the culprit, the police began asking O'Brien to walk them through the path that they had taken the children trick-or-treating. Clearly, they want to know where they got the pixie sticks from. Right. And the kids don't know because the kids weren't there. Mm -hmm. Remember, the dad had gotten them. So O'Brien claimed that he could not remember which house he had received the pixie sticks from because it was dark and it had actually been raining that night. So, like, the weather wasn't great. Mm -hmm. So after walking through the neighborhood about three times with police, O'Brien stopped in front of one home and stated that it must have been that one. And he claimed to not have seen the man who gave him the pixie sticks, but the, like, the man had opened the door just far enough to give him the pixie sticks. And he said that the only thing he can remember about the guy is that his arm was really hairy. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so the house that O'Brien had identified was owned by a Courtney Melvin when questioned by Nassif, Melvin stated that he wasn't even home that night. He was working as an air traffic controller at William P. Hobby Airport, and he didn't get home until 11 p.m., which was, like, after trick-or-treating hours mm -hmm. was, was over. Now, he – and Nassif's really funny because I, I just like the way he was interviewed. The girl asked him, like, oh, so – like, it couldn't have been Melvin because he wasn't here until 11 p.m. And the guy's like, um, no, we had nine people come up front saying they would write, like, sign sworn affidavits saying they saw him at work. And they said we had nearly 200 witnesses because he worked at a, an airport. Mm -hmm. So, like, they could have gotten, you know, yeah, a, a ton of people. Saying that he was or was not at work? Saying that he was there. They okay. saw him there. They were like, no, he worked until 11. Good, like, he was good there. for him. Okay. So news of the situation spread like wildfire throughout the community. Everyone was terrified mm -hmm. of like whether or not their own children's candy had been tampered with, even mm -hmm. though they didn't get these pixie sticks, but right. still. So because of all the talk around the town, a local banker and a local insurance salesman struck up a conversation about the O'Brien family one day and about 
you know how sad it was that timothy had died and Mm -hmm. then they're like oh well we know the family we've worked with ronald before and they concluded that ronald o'brien had actually taken out life insurance policies on his (gasps) two children like two months before halloween no so he actually he he had canceled the life insurance on himself and took out two on his children and then there was something about he opened like a separate bank account or something like I don't know it's really weird and they thought it was very suspicious so they imme- immediately like went to the police department to talk with Nassif because they were like because the police and Nassif said it in his interview he was basically like we didn't think like we're we didn't think that a person could do this to their children no like he had no idea and so they weren't suspecting o'brien at all and when the banker and the insurance salesman came they're like listen not to like cross hairs or anything but we think this is suspicious so uh nasa took their statements and then contacted the da's office they began to dig into o'brien's life further and found other incriminating information such that he was over $100,000 in debt. He was actually suspected of theft at a few of the 21 jobs that he had previously held. No. He had also defaulted on several bank loans and was slated to get his car repossessed. I believe their house was being foreclosed on or something like that as well. Now, the insurance policies that he had taken out on his children were very close to the amount he would need to pay off like a certain number of his bills because mm-hmm. it was something weird he took out one on each of them and then he went back and got even more out on them or something like that so nasa began interviewing ronald's wife and she told him that she kind of thought something was wrong and she told him that she, ronald had told her stories or that she had figured out stories that happened in the past that ronald did to essentially commit insurance fraud Hmm. so he had like caught a business on fire you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and she was like well now that you think about it i guess that is kind of suspicious you know things like that that she was like this doesn't add up yeah so they were like okay we got to talk to ronald now ronald o'brien never confessed to anything but he was arrested and sent to trial The jury took less than an hour to deliberate after hearing the evidence presented, and O'Brien was eventually sentenced to death by lethal injection, and he was executed in 1984. That's insane. Right. So, if you watch the interview with Nassif, the interview, the woman interviewing him asks, okay, well, how did this affect the community? And he was like, it took years before people went trick-or-treating again. Because they couldn't convince him. He said it took years. He mm-hmm. said he said the next year after that, a lot of churches organized Halloween parties mm-hmm. instead of, like, kids going out trick-or-treating. Um, some, play, some schools actually said they would give kids prizes if they would stay home on Halloween night. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, like, people would throw, like, family friend Halloween parties. He mm-hmm. said it was years before people went trick-or-treating. Of course, I don't blame them. Right. Because in their minds, like, who... 
first the rumor goes around that, you know, some stranger did it, and then you, they probably know Ronald, and they're like, Ronald, some people are probably like, Ronald wouldn't do this. Exactly. And and so they end up thinking. Well, even, even still though, he gave pixie sticks to people who were not his children. Yeah. Well, I mean, were they all poisoned? Yeah. Oh, all five of them were poisoned. Oh, yeah. Because I was going to say, if he just poisoned, like, the one he gave Mm -hmm. to his kids. Oh, no. All of them. All of them were poisoned. Oh, yeah. I mean, either way, it's terrible. Now, the New York Times did uh, write a small piece about the death of Timothy. Uh, It was called Boy Killed by Cyanide Put in Halloween Candy. The Harris County Medical Examiner said today that an 8-year-old boy had died of cyanide poisoning from eating Halloween candy. Dr. Joseph Yakimizak said the cyanide was in, quote, giant pixie sticks, powdered candy, and a straw given to Timothy, Mark O'Brien, and two friends. If they, the friends, had eaten the candy, they would have died, the medical examiner said. Timothy of Suburban Deer Park died at Southmore Hospital in Pasadena about an hour and a half after eating the candy. The police said they had narrowed the search for the source to residents of two streets. Now, once again... I could not find a follow-up to this. So, of course, people are going to be terrified. And once again, like, this is where I kind of go back to, like, there are incidents of things happening with Halloween candy or near Halloween. Mm -hmm. But it's it's not somebody randomly handing out poison candy. No. Um, but the newspaper articles make it sound like that. Mm -hmm. So, of course, people are going to be scared. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, I mean, I don't blame them. If they thought that the person hadn't been caught or if that's all the story they got, then, yeah. Now, fun fact for you, after this happened, hospitals in the area and then around the country began offering to x-ray candy for people. (laughs) (laughs) People could bring their candy and they'd x-ray it for them. I thought that was really funny. That's awesome. Now, there's not a lot of other stories. That one's pretty much the big one. I have a few other um, points to go over. On October 26, 1982, the governor of New Jersey signed a bill that would require a jail term for those caught tampering with Halloween candy. Oh, good for them. Yes. So I thought that was very... I mean, you should... It's like child endangerment, I guess, right? Anyway, yeah. but still, like, that should be a You shouldn't have to bill. say it, but sometimes you have to say it, you know? Right. So, more detail on it. The New York Times, once again, did an article. It's called Poison Candy Jail Bill is Approved in Jersey. So, the New Jersey Legistra- Legistra- Legislature oof, approved <laughs> a bill today that would impose a six-month mandatory jail term on anyone convicted of trying to hand out poison Halloween candy. The bill passed 27 to 6 in the Senate, then received final approval in the Assembly 61 to 0. It now awaits action by Governor Keene. This article, as well as another article that was released on October 28th, 1982, so just two days later from the New York Times, um, they both... Now, the first one was about the governor and the bill in New Jersey, mm-hmm. but it also mentions around this time there was the Tylenol poisonings. Have you heard? I don't remember. Um, Somebody went into pharmacies or places where you could buy Tylenol, mm-hmm. and they opened the bottles, and mm. they put poison in them, uh. and people died. Yeah. And this was around this time. So the next couple articles that the New York Times released mentions this 
Mm-hmm. And this only added fuel to the fire of, we don't know where people are putting this poison. Yeah. It could be in your drugstore stuff. It could be in your candy. It could Who be knows? in your candy. Exactly. So the next article was called Poison Worries Lead to Precautions for Halloween. It came out on October 28th, 1982, like I stated. And it, it was just all kinds of fears that could have happened, but it basically was stating like, this happened with the Tylenol bottle, so who knows what's in our Halloween candy. Mm-hmm. Which I, makes sense, I guess. Then two days later, or three days later, I guess. Was it in the same area? I want to say yes. Because I can understand if you're saying, like, somebody was the Tylenol able- poisons happened in 1982. Chicago. So big city. But somebody was able to walk into a drugstore and poison well, all these bottles. Now you have to think. This, the Tylenol poisonings, if you haven't read about it, it, it's very fascinating. And this actually was a big step towards drug companies sealing their drugs. Because mm. they weren't sealed before. Okay. Or they didn't have like the peel lid or the cotton on top. They didn't have any of that. So, this was, like, a huge step in that direction. So, that's why it made it a lot easier for people to do that. Well, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, before you get started. Before I go off. Because you haven't read about Because it was 1982. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, they should have known, I guess. But but at the same time, if somebody's going to walk in and poison medication, then who's to say they wouldn't poison right. candy? Like, right. that means they're crazy enough to do one. Why wouldn't they be crazy enough e- to do another? Exactly. So, October 31st, 1982, just a few days after these two articles came out, a separate article came out titled, New Warnings of Tainted Candy, Heightened Worries Over Halloween. Now, this was once again released by New York Times. Now, it, it, uh, what's, what's the word I want to say? Anyway, it talks about that children had been hospitalized, um, in the weeks leading up to October, up to Halloween for consuming, um, Tootsie Rolls laced with PCP. Oh. Or finding, um, needles in candles. At the store, or finding things in the Quaker Oats or Kit Kat bars. Hmm. But once again, I want to once again state this. This was not on Halloween, mm-hmm. and none of these happened to trick-or-treaters. Right. They were things that happened, and a lot of people think that they could have been hoaxes. Or people heard about t- tainted Halloween candy, and then they were like, well, I'm going to go put something in this Kit Kat bar at the store kind of thing. Or which is terrible, said, but... Or it could have not happened and they could have heard about a tainted Halloween candy and yes. then said, well, if they did that, then what if they did this? Right, exactly, exactly. Now, adding even... This is just kind of like a separate sub-story, which I found kind of interesting. Um, there was a crime ring called Mystery Man with 21 Faces. Now, this crime ring blackmailed Japanese candy companies around this time and stated that if they did not pay a ransom, that this crime gang was going to poison their batches of candy. Oh. Now, at first, nothing happened. Like, they pulled all their candy, checked it all, and nothing had happened, and they're like, okay, it's a joke, it's a hoax. Well, 
a little bit later, some Japanese stores did find bags of candy with cyanide in them. Oh, no. Now, I don't know what happened with this candy. I, I don't know. I didn't dive deep into that. But this kind of just added fuel to the fire for everybody. Yeah. Now... While there may have been some official accounts of tainted candy, most of the stories that surround actual Halloween candy are suggestions of what could be, like I've said before. Yeah. Now, Joel Best, a sociologist at the University of Delaware, found less than 90 instances of what could be qualified as candy tampering in newspaper articles from the 1950s to the 1980s. However, out of all of these None of them were random attempts to harm children on Halloween night. Right. Some were hoaxes. Some were stories, you know, someone heard from somebody who heard from somebody. And then some were actual crimes. But once again, it was kind of like um, Ronald O'Brien. He had a purpose for it. He wasn't randomly attacking children. Yeah. With Halloween candy. Mm -hmm. Now, the uneasiness that came with not knowing where trick-or-treat candy came from because, you know, we hear all these stories. Mm-hmm. Um, this is kind of how the urban legend came to life. Um, and that's why we check our candy to this day. I mean, I I feel like it's a habit now. Like, I yeah. feel like it's something that, oh, you check your candy. Even, mm-hmm. even to make sure it didn't get on... We come unwrapped because it's kind of gross, but like, oh yeah, you check it. Well, you also, but it's the thing too, like you check your food at the grocery store too. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) you you don't take the can of soup that's dented. I got really mad one time. This is just um, a personal embarrassment story that I got really, (laughs) like really angry one time because I bought a carton of almond milk. Yeah. And when I opened it, it was, it was open. Okay. And I was like, why was this open already? But, like, it was one of those ones that when you twist the cap, it pops the oh. seal. But I was thinking... You didn't thinking, know? You, pull, like, had I the pool I was thinking tab. it had the pool tab. Yeah. And then I, like, went back and looked at it. I think I even called mom or dad, and I was like, can you believe this? And then I'm, like, looking at it, and I'm like, wait a minute. And you're like, oh, never mind. <laughs> wait a minute. I broke... Like, I had to have done it, right? Like... Yeah. But... It was infuriating to me because I'm like, I don't know what someone could have put in this. Right. Or if it could have gone bad. Like, I have no idea how long it's been open. Right. So, but but there's always the thought of, you know, who messed with this. Yeah. Without me seeing. Exactly. Well, and that's, I think that's the big part. I mean, even before all of this happened, it's got to be in the back of your mind, especially in places that aren't like, close-knit communities, yeah. you don't know where you're getting your candy from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you don't know who's handing you candy. Yeah. Even if you do live in a small neighborhood, like, sometimes you don't know. You don't know where it came from, mm-hmm. so, like... I feel like when we were little and we would go trick-or-treating around, we... Mo- Mom and Dad knew who most people were. Yeah. So, for the most part, it was like, oh, that's so-and-so, it's okay for you to go up to their house. Yeah, but, I mean, you gotta think... I Listen... A lot of serial killers had friends. Oh, I know. Like, you think like, you, you can... never know. Like, oh, I could dress them inside. I feel like I'd be making a list almost like at a bridal shower. Like, oh, you got what kind of candy from who? Okay, I'll write that down. I'll write that down. It's for thank you cards. It's for thank you cards. I'm very suspicious. Not for evidence later. 
Well, that's basically the end of my story. So do you think that my story is going to keep you up at night? Or do you think you'll still be able to sleep as snug as a bug in a rug? Uh, I'm a little disturbed. <laughs> uh, I honestly, like, I kind of knew what we were going to be talking about. But um, I didn't know the story about Mr. Ronald and, and poor Timothy. Like, I really was like... Oh man, who could have done that? And I wasn't ready for that twist, so I'm a little. Uh, neither were the police. Nasser, <laughs> Nasser will say it himself. <laughs> I'm a little shook by that. Um, I do. So, so I think it'll keep me up a little bit. But for the most part, you know, I, I don't trick or treat, and I feel like we're we were always pretty careful about our candy when yeah. we did anything that looked like it was even slightly off. We just didn't yeah. didn't eat. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I think that that's gonna give me a little bit of peace i do want to say one thing though about one of the stories that you told and that was the dentist who handed out the candy that was laxatives Mm -hmm. do you think he just like maybe he had a box of chocolates with laxatives that he used for himself no and he got it mixed up with the other makes sense is that he is a dentist and he's tired of seeing cavities so he gives kids candy that makes them violently ill so they never eat candy again Get out of here. I've cracked the case. <laughs> I don't. He, why would he do this? I don't know. Winnie, people are crazy. Why would the one lady give rat po- ant poison to children? Because she's a terrible person. Drugs. Drugs. No, thank you. She's probably uh, on something. Good story. I I mean, terrible story, but good job. <laughs> I think that... Still you, be cautious of your candy, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, always. I, anytime I open something, even if it's almond milk and I have to have a little conniption, <laughs> I'd rather have a conniption about it. And, than be poisoned. And be wrong than be poisoned. <laughs> oh, man. But, I mean, I hate to say something good came out of it, but, like, at least with the Tylenol, it really got a movement going to put tamper-proof seals yeah. on things. At least as far as medicine goes, I wish you had tamper-proof seals on candy. Okay, it's kind of yeah. hard to do. True. Well, at least, I mean, even though it's an urban legend, like I said, it's always good to check your candy. Like, there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong. It doesn't hurt anything. You know what I mean? I wonder if, I know most places don't do, like, x-ray machines anymore, but I wonder if a metal detector would work on some of that stuff. Probably. Not, like, poison, but. Yeah. Razor blades, maybe. Right. I don't know how sensitive they are. I don't either. Just depends. Or needles. I'm not sure. I don't know. But anyway, I think that, you know, with COVID happening this year, I think there's some trick-or-treating going on. I don't know how much, but uh, be careful. Check your candy and um, also have Halloween parties in your community. I think that's important to... Yeah. Safely. Wear masks. Safely. Wear masks. Yes. Wear masks and then wear masks over your masks yeah. that represent your costume, you know? <laughs> exactly. I have a mask that uh, matches my costume. I'm very excited about that. I don't. I just gotta... I'm just gonna wear mine that looks like a skull, even though it has nothing to do <laughs> with like, my I outfit. A, I have an orange one you can use. Eh, maybe. We'll... I'll think about it. We'll All workshop right. it. <laughs> well, uh, thank you guys for listening. If you want to check out any of my resources... Which I highly recommend it. I mean, the New York Times, if you can get on there, the newspaper articles are fascinating. And then the one that had the interview with Nassif was ABC, is like the ABC one. So if, if you're interested in that, check out our website, bugandarug.podbean.com. Let us know what you thought. Let us know, d- did your parents 
steal your candy when you went trick-or-treating? And did they claim that it was because it was unsafe? Let us know. You can contact us on Twitter and Instagram at BIAR Podcast. That's also where you can see our pictures along with our Facebook page, which is just Bug and a Rug. If you have any suggestions on what we should do um, for the podcast, any topics at all, if you just want to say hi, you can also email us. That's BIARpodcast at gmail.com. I hope everybody has a safe and spoopy October, and we'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. All right, signing off. I'm Caitlin. I'm Whitney. Bye. Sleep tight.